So, as this is the first of a new batch of lectures, it's worth me uh, going over again how these lectures work. They're each on a single play, and what I try and do is to collect some of the critical and kind of uh, methodological issues about the play by focusing on a single question, sometimes quite a silly or a naive question about the play. And what I'm trying to do really is not to give you a reading of these individual plays, um, but to give you a range of ways of thinking about them uh, that you might be able to follow up in your own work. What I'm really trying to do is to stimulate you going off in one of the directions that I might just uh, touch on, rather than to work to grind through a whole thing that you would write down and then, and then try and reproduce. So there's not a huge amount of factual content, I don't think, in the lectures, although I'll start always with a, a, a kind of summary of the plot, some, so that if you don't know the play already, you can at least try and follow what it is I'm talking about. So the first play uh, I'm going to talk about is As You Like It. Um, as you like, it's probably written and performed in early 1600, and I'm going to come back to the historical context of the play uh, in a minute. And, uh, as you know, it's first published in the posthumous collected edition of Shakespeare's plays in 1623. And the question I want to ask about this play is, what happens in As You Like It? What happens in As You Like It? So I'll start by summarising As You Like It, which may look as if it's going to give us the answer to that question immediately. So in As You Like It, the Duke Frederick has exiled his older brother, Duke Senior, but kept his daughter, Rosalind, his, that's Duke Senior's daughter, Rosalind, at court to be a companion to his own daughter, Celia. Meanwhile, Orlando, who is being persecuted by his older brother, Oliver, after the death of their father, comes to court, uh, set up by Oliver in a wrestling match, which surprisingly he wins, uh, and he also earns Rosalind's love in the process. Rosalind is banished from court by her uncle, and she escapes to the forest, dressed as a boy, Ganymede, along with C Celia, her cousin, and their fool, Touchstone. In the forest is also Duke Senior's exiled court, but it must be quite a large forest since they don't encounter each other for a while. <laughs> Rosalind and Celia set themselves up with a cottage and some sheep. Orlando goes round pinning terrible poetry to trees, Duke Senior's lords philosophise about the natural life. There are a lot of speeches and a lot of songs. In the end, four couples are united and the Duke is restored. That's it. So I've tried to summarise the plot of the play in a way which I hope suggests that an easy answer to the question what happens in As You Like It is not very much. James Shapiro, talking about the play as part of his brilliant survey of the year 1599, a kind of Annus Mirabilis in Shakespeare's career, calls it uh, a relatively plotless play, which I think is quite a polite way of putting it, relatively plotless, i.e. nothing happens. In part, Shapiro blames the thinness of the plot in the play's source, Thomas Lodge's novella, Rosalind. So Shapiro says there's not much happens in Rosalind either, so there's not much for Shakespeare to work with. I'm not completely sure that would let Shakespeare off the hook. Shapiro's book reminds us that As You Like It belongs to a period of huge creative energy for Shakespeare. Uh, and that's part of the reason why um, my sense that not much happens in As You Like It seems to me something interesting rather than uh, something not interesting. <laughs> so As You Like It belongs to the moment of the New Globe Theatre and it's adjacent, very closely adjacent in Shakespeare's writing to Henry V, to Julius Caesar and to Hamlet. There's quite a lot of sort of sideways comparisons with Hamlet uh, I, I'd like to make as we go through the lecture. We might, I think, more helpfully consider it alongside this group of chronological plays, 
rather than is more usual with other romantic or cross-dressing comedies. And here, the addition of Shakespeare that you're using is actually uh, can, can shape the kinds of things you're able to see. If you're using a collected edition of Shakespeare, which uses the first folio designations, that will divide the plays by histories, uh, uh, comedies, and tragedies. They will look like the groups uh, that it's most obvious to think of the plays in, generic groups. Uh, but if you look at a, a, a collected edition like, say, the Oxford edition, that's an edition which prints the plays, prints the works in the their putative order of composition. Okay, so that gives us a, a kind of chronological approach which enables you to look at things which, are, uh, which might have been written around the same time and to think about the time of writing, the time of performance as the category of analysis rather than the genre. So positioned around the middle of Shakespeare's two-decade career as a dramatist, As You Like It is inclined to telling rather than showing and to set-piece declamation rather than action. I think it's appropriate that the play's most famous lines are just such a set piece. The famous Seven Ages of Man speech delivered by the melancholy Jaques, a lord of Duke Senior's court. You can more or less sing along with this with me. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. Jacques goes on, as you remember, to enumerate the infant mewling and puking, the schoolboy creeping to school like a snail, the lover, the soldier, the justice, the lean and slippered pantaloon, and finally the second childishness of old age. It's a wonderful, much-quoted, metatheatrical speech. It's very useful for us if we're trying to think about uh, a Shakespeare or a set of characters who know they are in plays. Um, But it's one that I think is written with an eye to the commonplace book, those collections of quotable sayings which educated Elizabethans kept ransacking their reading for things that could be taken out of any kind of narrative context and used um, as a kind of rhetorical exemplar or a, um, a piece of moral wisdom about some particular topic. These gems that needed no wider context to make any kind of sense may have actually encouraged a particular kind of writing which had sort of already embedded quotations and Jayquiz is giving us a quotation and and we've picked it up and quoted it. Uh, We've been cued to do that. Perhaps in this sense our modern preoccupation with the structure and unity of early modern works of literature is very anachronistic. For contemporaries the point of them was that they were full of quotations that could be ported uh, easily out. In the play itself Jayquiz's speech is distinctly under-motivated. There's kind of no point for it and it serves to halt rather than to advance any plot. So, like the many songs with which the play is punctuated, that's to say, Jacquery's speech is a hiatus or a pause. It's not a furthering. Uh, songs, um, songs in the, in, this, is, this is a play with probably the, the uh, largest number of songs of any Shakespeare play, and you'll know if you've, if you've seen a play in the theatre how long songs take. Um, they really are very, a, a very slowing decelerating kind of uh, force in the theatre. And that's mostly their point, is to give us, is to give us a pause. If you think about the, um, the music that Portia uh, has playing in The Merchant of Venice before Bassanio chooses between the caskets, that's a deliberate um, putting off the moment of choice. The point of the song is it kind of freezes things. Uh, it's a kind of freeze frame. So in all that case then, Jacquery's speech on the seven edges of man seems to me an appropriate epitome of the play's own tendency towards stasis rather than momentum. 
to moments of contemplation rather than moments of action. In an extended conversation about the implications of time, Orlando tells Rosalind that there's no clock in the forest. There's no clock in the forest, suggesting that the Forest of Arden exists in a kind of suspended animation. Now, I want to outline some of the ways in which this tendency to stasis is part of the play's debt to the genre of pastoral and to make some connections with other pastoral texts. And then I want to try and think about the play uh, itself again to revisit some of the ways in which its dramatic structure, even its anti-dramatic structure, plays out. So I should reiterate, I think the tendency to stasis in this play is deliberate, or at least I think it's purposeful. It highlights some structural issues about comedy as a genre, and as I said, it's something we can interestingly compare with those other contemporaneous plays I listed a moment ago. It has some affinities with the tendency to speechify in Julius Caesar, or with the curious anticlimax of Henry V, which ought to be building up to a big battle scene, the Battle of Agincourt, but somehow never does. Or most clearly, I suppose, with the kind of frustrated movement forward, which is so characteristic of Hamlet. And I'm going to come back to the ways this preference for verbal over physical action might be connected with the particular moment of the play's composition. But first, let's think generically for a minute. As You Like It is Shakespeare's most sustained take on the genre of pastoral. And that's a genre which is associated primarily not with the active genre of drama, but with more contemplative or static genres, especially poetry and prose fiction. Pastoral, as one definition puts it, and you can find a similar definition in any dictionary of literary terms, tends to be an idealisation of shepherd life, and by doing so, creates an image of peaceful and uncorrupted existence, a kind of pre-lapsarian world. That's quite important about pastoral, that it's a kind of Edenic world. This is a world before the fall. It displays a nostalgia for the past and for some state of harmony which has been lost. A dominating theme of much pastoral is the search for a simple life away from the court or the town, away from corruption, war, strife or politics. Now we can see from this description of pastoral that inertia is actually intrinsic to it. This is a genre which is retreating from the active life, uh, which is a descriptive rather than active, nostalgic and looking backwards rather than narrative or progressive. And you know this already if you've had to read the Arcadia uh, Shepherd's Calendar. Not, not kind of page turners, really. I think we could agree. Pastoral had its origins in Virgil's eclogues and flourished in the humanist culture of Tudor England. And by the 1590s, when Shakespeare's writing As You Like It, a series of tropes, pastoral tropes, had been quite clearly established. Noble shepherds debating in speeches and in song the difference between court and countryside, uncaring mistresses, um, uh, disdainful women generally, uh, poetic competitions, etc. Bad weather often. So we might think again of Spencer's Shepherd's Calendar, published in 1579. (laughs) The absent love object in the Shepherd's Calendar is called Rosalind. Uh, We know that Shakespeare's major source is Lodge's novella, but uh, Rosalind comes in as well via the Shepherd's Calendar. We might think about Sidney's Arcadia with the theme of pastoral cross-dressing. 
So pastoral is, like the early modern theatre itself, an urban genre, uh, a genre which, which works out of towns and cities, which is generated by those uh, kind of conurbations, and one in which rural life is idealised and allegorised. Virgil, whose eclogues are foundational to the genre of pastoral, used these bucolic stories to imagine a golden age, at once fictional but also highly political. And this curious combination of engagement with politics and escapism from politics structures pastoral right from the start, right from Virgil, and goes through, and I think you will see it in As You Like It also. In The Shepherd's Calendar, Spencer is preoccupied with the politics of the Elizabethan court, shadowing both his own poetic autobiography and his engagement with radical Protestantism in these stories of shepherds singing their unrequited loves against inclement weather. (coughs) So crucial to the discussion of pastoral is the idea that it embodies a notion known as otium. Otium. Otium is a Greek word which signals something like leisure. It's opposed in Greek and Roman philosophy to negotium, that's active public life. So the distinction between otium, leisure, and negotium, uh, active life, is perhaps literalised here for us in As You Like It in the distinction between the forest and the court. If pastoral favours the contemplative virtues associated with otium, then it also, it, it also tends to enact them form and content are aligned. Pastoral is about leisure and is leisure, is, is about leisure and is leisurely. If something happens in a pastoral, it tends to happen verbally. Pastoral shepherds entertain themselves with singing contests. Action is contained within reportage or prophecy. And for the Elizabethans, pastoral is a really high-status genre. Pastoral shepherds are noble beings, but one in which socially marginalised peoples might also get a voice. As Philip Sidney puts it in his Apology for Poetry, pastoral can show the misery of people under hard lords or ravening soldiers, and what blessedness is deprived to them that lie lowest from the goodness of them that sit highest, sometimes under the pretty tales of wolves and sheep, can include the whole considerations of wrongdoing and patience. So Sidney suggests that pastoral gives a voice to people who are not in a kind of privileged position. The alternative view we get in Shakespeare quite often is that um, people who are burdened with cares, burdened with the cares of office, would like to become shepherds. Uh, Richard II says that. Uh, Henry VI also says it. There are lots of people who who idealise this uh, idea of the shepherd life without care. Christine Edzard's 1992 film of As You Like It Uh, in modern dress, brought out, I think, the political implications of this view from Sydney. Rosalind, wearing jeans and a beanie hat, joined an alternative community of outsiders. Arden was a kind of urban cardboard city in which Orlando spray-painted graffiti poems onto concrete barriers. Not as bad as I made it sound, actually. (laughs) So the idea of an allegorical reading of pastoral, either politically or ethically, as Sydney suggests here, or in Spencer when he's thinking about the religious connotations of shepherds and the flock. Um, This is a common one. So the idea that pastoral is an an allegory. So it looks as if it's an escape from um, uh, real life, as it were, but in fact it's just an allegory of it. And that brings us back to the idea that even 
as pastoral landscape figures itself as an escape from the everyday world, it's actually the shadow or double of that world. Okay, so that's quite a long excursus into pastoral as a genre. How does that actually help us with As You Like It? Well, I think like the account of pastoral I've just been proposing, As You Like It plays with the ideas of distinctness and convergence between its two worlds or two settings. <coughs> because the Forest of Arden has been so compelling and so sort of fruitful a setting uh, imaginatively, we tend to think that the whole of As You Like It takes place in the Forest of Arden. But in fact, the whole long first act of the play takes place in court. And it's not until Act 2, Scene 4, more than a third of the way through, that Rosalind announces, well, this is the Forest of Arden. That's an interesting contrast, maybe, we might think, with Twelfth Night, uh, Shakespeare's other major cross-dressing comedy, where Viola appears only really for a few moments as a woman and then is into her disguise as Cesario for the whole of the rest of the play. Rosalind has a long time being Rosalind <laughs> before she comes in as Ganymede. So it's easy to construct a vision of the play in which the court and the forest are absolute opposites. Negotium to otium, to use those terms that I introduced before, urban to rural, romance to pastoral, male to female. Duke Senior, in his first entrance in Act 2, draws just this comparison between the forest world and the court world. Now my co-mates and brothers in exile... Hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? So painted pomp as the idea of what the court is like. Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here we feel not the penalty of Adam. So the pastoral attempts to, to recreate a fallen Eden. Here we feel not the penalty of Adam. This is prelapsarian. This is before uh, everything went so wrong. And it must be significant in this regard that the play's own figure, Adam, is an old man. The attempt to recreate the fallen Eden is both ambitious and already doomed to failure. Now, seeing pastoral as one pole in a binary system of ideological opposites fits with a common way of conceptualising dual locations in Shakespeare. We might compare Rome and Egypt in Antony and Cleopatra or Belmont and Venice in The Merchant of, of Venice, for example. So there's lots of criticism about those two plays and others which say the two locations stand for quite distinct sort of worldviews. They're, they're, they're separate, alternative uh, views of, of the world and of what's possible. And of course, that's not entirely wrong. Uh, there are ways in which these dual settings are opposites. But in As You Like It, as I think in these other plays, there are ways in which the edges between the two worlds are definitely blurred. In a practical way, we don't simply move from court to forest. There are a number of scenes which to and fro between them. And although the modern stage, the 20th century stage, has made a kind of visual recreation of the Forest of Arden, one, a, a great sort of stage trick, so we've seen very, very uh, realist or very... Um, uh, elaborate stagings with trees and animals, um, a real deer uh, brought on stage uh, in, in the Edwardian period, a stuffed deer, um, which you can still see in the Props uh, Museum at, in Stratford, uh, through, in most of the productions at Stratford-upon-Avon in the 20th century. So all this work to create a kind of realistic forest is, of course, completely anachronistic. On the early modern stage, on the Globe Theatre stage, there would have been no visual difference between the court 
and the forest. So that work, uh, the work of staging to establish uh, the locations as completely distinct is a, is a modern one rather than an early modern one. The difference between Arden and the court in the Globe Theatre would have been entirely verbal. Ro- uh, Rosalind's declaration, well, this is the forest of Arden, is not descriptive in that context then, but performative. Only saying this is the forest of Arden makes it so, not staged trees or grass or other props. So this idea that the two locations didn't look different uh, and m- may not signal entirely oppositely has been, a more, uh, has, has been picked up in more recent production. The idea of the ambiguity deep in the pastoral genre that the pastoral space both, both is and is not an escape from the real world um, I think is quite, has been quite an interesting thing for modern directors. And I'm just going to give one review of Adrian Noble's 1985 production for the RSC to give an idea of how this might work. This is Roger Warren writing about Noble's production. The usurping court doubled as the forest court, simply wrapping white dust sheets around their evening dress. When Rosalind, Celia and Touchstone arrived in Arden, they drew behind them more white sheeting that covered the court furniture, Later, this furniture was replaced by identical green versions. At times, Arden seemed merely a country of the mind, a spiritual voyage of discovery by Duke Frederick, Rosalind and Orlando, but not the others, as when Touchstone was twice ducked in a very real pool. So this idea that the forest is merely the sleeping or subconscious or dust-wrapped court draws on a familiar adjacent interpretation of Midsummer Night's Dream, which you're probably familiar with. In that play, so the story goes, the fairy queen and fairy king and queen Oberon and Titania are echoes, dream versions, subconscious versions of their Athenian counterparts, Theseus and Hippolyta. They're often played by the same actors to emphasise the link that these are the same people, uh, in a, just in a different context. Doubling was also used by Noble in this I Do Like It production to link the two dukes, Duke Frederick and Duke Senior, making them dark and light sides of the same personality. And it may in fact be that this was originally the case in the early modern theatre. This practicality that one actor plays the two dukes would explain a strange anticlimax in As You Like It's final act. We are promised that Duke Frederick is going to come into the, into the forest um, uh, with, uh, with armed men but that arrival is postponed a new character a brother to Orlando and Oliver enters with the surprising news that to the skirts of this wild wood he came where meeting with an old religious man after some question with him was converted both from his enterprise and from the world his crown bequeathing to his banished brother and all their lands restored to them again that were with him exiled so Duke Frederick has this uh, unlikely com- uh, conversion in the, uh, in the, uh, as he enters the forest and so never has to appear on stage. Sometimes on stage this is presented as a self-consciously and comically unlikely plot twist which is almost thought up on the spur of the moment to think what are we going to do, the plot needs this guy to split into two figures, how are we going to explain the fact that the other one doesn't come and I've seen it done very... Funnily, where Duke Senior is on stage thinking, how, how is this going to work? Get me out of this one. I can't, be in t- I can't be two people at the same time. So the idea that the play is written to play off an idea of, of doubling, uh, I think it's quite a compelling one. 
a playful acknowledgement of the overlapping rather than distinct jurisdictions. The two dukes are really just the same person after all, just as the two courts are really just the same. It's also then a way of collapsing that pastoral project. If the same duke leads both the court and the forest communities, we can see that they are, in some sense, the same place. On the other hand, if we maintain the idea that the two dukes are distinct persons, the idea that the forest is morally regenerative, that it has this miraculous power uh, to convert people, Northrop Fry's influential idea of the green world, that's more sustainable. More interestingly, perhaps, Noble's Arden, in that production that we're discussing, was both a metaphor or a state of mind to the noble characters and a real place to the more lowly ones. Touchstone is ducked in a real pond. Let's just take a minute to explore the distinction between uh, pastoral as a real place and as a, as a metaphor. So the unreal haze of pastoral is part of Shakespeare's depiction of the Forest of Arden. We've already seen that pastoral is an urban projection or idealisation. It's less a description of the real countryside than a literary fiction. And certainly left-wing critics from Raymond Williams onwards through new historicism have been suspicious of pastoral as a genre which evades the kind of realities of land ownership and all those kinds of things. So if you think back to those new historicist views of romantic poetry, do you remember uh, that very compelling article on um, uh, Wordsworth Tintin Abbey, which says, why does Wordsworth wipe out from this view, this pastoral sort of ideal view, all the people who work there and who are kind of uh, involved in, uh, in, in sort of industrial production uh, round Tintin Abbey. That's all part of a, a suspicion of pastoral as a kind of upper-class conspiracy uh, which, which writes out uh, what it's really like to be a, a country person, um, a bit like a kind of modern idea of Norfolk or something, um, that, we go, that, that you know, there's a, a kind of gentrified idea of uh, countryside and a, 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 much, a much grittier one underneath. So that would suggest that uh, Shakespeare's Forest of Arden is less a description of the real countryside than a literary fiction. It draws on literary models rather than, as critics have sometimes romantically implied, drawing on Shakespeare's own country childhood. The literary generation of the forest is clear from names like Corin, Phoebe and Silvius. Uh, these are not uh, everyday uh, names. These are pastoral names. These are fictional names. Charles the Wrestler reports that the exiled duke lives, quote, in the forest of Arden, and, merry, sorry, and many merry men with him, and there they live like the old Robin Hood of England, and fleet the time carelessly as they did in the Golden World. So they live like the old Robin Hood of England. And the idea combines a native folklore idea of Robin Hood with that powerful myth of the Golden Age of Peace and Harmony, which comes from Book One of Ovid. It's a very typical Shakespearean conflation of the native and the classical. Now, I think the Forest of Arden is just such a curious hybrid, a hybrid between the native and the classical, or between the semi-realistic uh, and the fictive. It's at once the never-never land of pastoral fantasy and a real place, just as sheep in the play are at once the traditional decoration of the pastoral backdrop and real, dirty, physical animals. Corin refuses Touchstone's courtly gesture of kissing hands, saying it would be uncleanly if courtiers were shepherds because we are still handling our ewes and their fells, their skins, you know, are greasy. So for Corin, the sheep are real things that have to be dealt with 
they're not uh, they're not just decorative they're not just pretty that confusion over the, the status the kind of ontology if you like of the forest of Arden extends to its naming in the play in that folio text of 1623 the first text uh, as I indicated the name of the forest is spelt Arden A-R-D-E-N a name obviously familiar to Shakespeare it's his mother's maiden name and the name of a Warwickshire woodland close to his birthplace. It thus has a claim to be a real place with real associations. And under this heading, we might think about corroborating rustic features like oak trees, willows, sheep and deer. So, so far, so England. But some editors, drawing on the play's source, Lodge's romance Rosalind, amend the spelling to Arden, A-R-D-E-N-N-E-S, suggesting either a location in Flanders of that name or in France that has more distant and more romance qualities. And this may seem a tiny, a tiny difference, but whether you call the forest a, a kind of English name or uh, a European kind of romance name does shape, I think, what we expect uh, is possible to happen there. It's a difference which betrays something of the, fo- of the paradox of the forest in As You Like It as both local and literary, familiar and strange. Within the forest, that ambiguity continues. We've already seen that Duke Senior and his men are associated with the story of Robin Hood. But uh, if you notice that phrase, Robin Hood of England, which suggests we're not in England, otherwise you would just say Robin Hood. So Robin Hood is both kind of recognised and distanced in in that phrase. Orlando's Frenchified romance name, Du Bois, suggests Dubois of the woods. The trope of the civilised outlaws in, in living in the forest is a stock story of romance and it belongs to a pleasurably artificial and fictive world. We'll see it again in Two Gentlemen of Verona, for instance. Um, you know, people who are outlaws in Shakespeare are uh, sort of very decent uh, law-abiding people who've just got on the wrong side of tyrants or something. So that artificial, fictive forest of Arden, perhaps, includes snakes, olive trees and lionesses It's full of storybook exotica. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there's a kind of, there's a native or or realistic or English sense uh, of Arden and then this kind of fictional uh, romance uh, uh, alien sense of it. We might think that what the forest allows its high-born characters is the fiction of being in a pastoral. It's rather like Marie Antoinette dressing as a shepherdess in the grounds of Versailles. But the fiction of pastoral is always undercut in the play. I think Shakespeare's use of the genre is satiric and self-conscious. Moments of artificiality tend to be undercut by bathos or by realism. If we take the overblown syntax of Orlando, run, run, Orlando, carve on every tree, the fair, the chaste and unexpressive she, uh, we can see it's immediately undercut by the next scene, which is the scene between Corinne and Touchstone talking about how dirty sheep are. Rosalind is a realist when she scolds Orlando, men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for love. Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for, the, not for love. She presents herself as a realist. Uh, in fact, the, the, the speech, if you go back to look at it, explicitly um, uh, distances her from romantic, sort of heroic prototypes like Troilus and Cressida or Hero and Leander. She's trying to bring these 
storybook figures down to earth and say that's not what it's like in real life. Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for love. But at the same time, in the forest, she is a prime pastoral fantasist playing the landowner in a distant echo of contemporary concerns about the enclosure of common land for sheep farming by wealthy landlords. Shakespeare, I think, toggles here between pastoral and satire, or perhaps more accurately, he articulates the satiric potential which is always there in pastoral. At some level, these shepherds must know they look stupid. So Arden Arden is a pastoral paradox, a real place with a recognisable proximity to everyday life and a distant fictional place. Or to put it another way, it's a location in which uh, urban wannabes gawp at real country people and vice versa. For the upper class characters, the forest is a pastoral, not for the, re- for the regular inhabitants. And so if we can see Arden as the play's weekend cottage, then its main purpose for the play's uh, court exiles is to waste time. That's quite an important point I'd like to make about Arden, a time-wasting place. It's to fill up the time created by the comedy. And again, I think we can see a structural parallel with Hamlet. (coughs) At one level, Hamlet has to delay his revenge, because without delay, there would be no play. Without the structural device of delay, revenge is just a fight. A fight is not five acts. Psychological explanations of why Hamlet delays taking revenge start from the wrong end, so to speak. We have to find a reason for him to take revenge rather than, um, you know, we have to justify the fact that he will take revenge rather than uh, uh, find his reasons first. He isn't so much delaying, that's to say, as filling up the time until the end of the play when he can take revenge. We can see something similar in comedy. We all know that Shakespeare's comedies end in marriage. Comic partners usually meet early in the play. So the play sets up, right, usually right at the beginning, what's going to happen at the end, and then has to spin out the fact that it can't happen straight away, otherwise we'll just all go home. So the structure of comedy is thus a structure of delay or time-filling. Dramatic pleasure is in having the desired and known outcome deferred. In As You Like It, we know right from the wrestling scene at court that Orlando and Rosalind will get together. There's no reason for them not to do so, so the play has to invent a series of diversionary or procrastinatory scenes to put off the inevitable. We know, too, that the good duke will be restored. That's what happens in comedy. And similarly, it can't happen immediately. So comedies thus epitomise the literary pleasure of withheld or deferred gratification. The play's title, which George Bernard Shaw thought was Shakespeare's own acknowledgement that the comedy was piffling and trifling and nothing much to bother with. In fact, I think, encapsulates the way it is meshed with audience expectation and desire. We all know this is as you like it. You want to know what's going to happen, but you don't want it to happen yet. That's comedy. So back to our opening question then. What happens in As You Like It? Answer, three hours of diversion until it's time to have the ending. And when that ending comes, as if to point out the foolishness of this theatrical contract, the ending still manages to look rushed. We've had plenty of time to prepare for it, but it's still, we're still in a hurry. Oliver and Celia are jammed together. Duke Frederick's offstage conversion that we've already talked about looks frankly as if no one has given it a moment's prior thought. And the atmosphere of Arden begins to unravel. An editor needs to say to Shakespeare, where did this lioness come from? Why have you introduced a character who has the same name as a character we've already got? This is the play falling out of control. 
um, uh, let, it's time to finish. It's time to, it's, it's, it's time to, it's time to finish it. Hymen, the goddess of marriage, is also brought in uh, at the end of As You Like It to solemnise these four marriages. Um, uh, and there's a question mark uh, just in brackets about whether Rosalind appears in her female costume for this, for this marriage. But in its final moments then, by bringing in Hymen, a goddess, the play throws away its vestiges of realism in a last camp paroxysm. "'Tis I must make conclusions, says Hymen, of these most strange events. Here's eight that must take hands to join in Hymen's bands. So I'm arguing, I think, that the Forest of Arden is a kind of holding pattern, a stasis, a kind of kettling, and that its purpose is to waste time. And that this is pointed out to us all through the play by its own frequent disquisitions on the nature of time. If you search an online text, the Internet Shakespeare uh, editions or the Internet Shakespeare archive are good reliable text for this. Search an online text uh, for the word time or variant words, hour and such. You see, it, it occurs with great frequency. There are 50 uses of the word time in this play. Charles tells us that men fleet the time carelessly. Jaques reports his meeting with Touchstone with the clown saying, from hour to hour we ripe and ripe, and then from hour to hour we rot and rot. Rosalind tells Orlando how time ambles, trots, gallops and stands still with different people. We could say that comedy is opposed to linear notions of time and to the over-invested teleology of tragedy. I've talked about this in other lectures, perhaps most notably uh, in Richard III. But what As You Like, As You Like It seems to know more clearly and to show more explicitly than the other comedies, that's to say, is that in the best sense it is a waste of time. I like this place, says Celia of Arden, and willingly could waste my time in it. As You Like It identifies comedy itself as a kind of time out from the real world, a pleasurable stasis, uh, a moment away from uh, movement and activity. We might think of the playwright Thomas Haywood, who in a defence of the theatre against its Puritan detractors, gives us a similar view of what theatre is for. Theatre is to recreate or recreate that word. I mean, I think both means form again and give leisure to recreation in, in our sense and recreation. To recreate such as of themselves are wholly devoted to melancholy which corrupts the blood or to refresh such weary spirits as are tired with labour or study to moderate the cares and heaviness of the mind that they may return to their trades and faculties with more zeal and earnestness after some soft and pleasant retirement. The idea that the theatre itself is a kind of forest of Arden that we go to to waste a bit of time, renew ourselves, and then go back to real life. I want to finish with two different approaches to the play which might give us a slightly different take on these static qualities. And one is to think about it uh, historically and the other is to think about it anachronistically. Let's think about it historically first. We could argue that As You Like It is one of Shakespeare's earliest satires. Uh, Frank Camogue <coughs> talks about it as the most topical of Shakespeare's plays, which is really interesting. We tend to think of the history plays as topical uh, immediately, you know, to do with Elizabethan politics and so on. Commode, uh, uh, in, in, in Shakespeare's language, says, is As You Like It, which is the most topical in reference. What it's topical about is really literature, literary fashions, uh, past, including pastoral and satire. And I think this is 
this has to be, of course, topicality has to be associated with the moment of its composition. Elizabethan press censorship experienced one of its most dramatic moments in the months before As You Like It was first performed. I'm just going to describe this, uh, uh, this, this censorship. In June 1599, the so-called Bishop's Ban, which was named after its sponsors, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London, responded to concerns about the contemporary literary scene by banning the publication of satires, particularly formal verse satire that had become a popular form of complaint and commentary by the end of the century. So June 1599, the Bishop's Ban bans formal verse satires. While they're at it, the bishops also banned works of English history um, without the approval of the Privy Council and also banned the printing of any play without authority. So verse satires, English history and plays, all censored or or newly or, or more insistently censored. The order to destroy extant copies of these works, particularly satires, resulted in public book burning uh, in the summer of 1599. The Bishop's Ban serves to associate three types of work, satire, history and drama, and it identifies them as not morally but politically dangerous or potentially seditious. Now we might see As You Like It as a play that responds to the ban on on verse satire by trying to incorporate some of its commercially and politically successful features. Indeed, it seems that when Celia is talking to Touchstone, who we might think of as a kind of satirist, uh, she seems to allude to the ban itself. Since the little wit that fools have was silenced, the little foolery that wise men have makes a great show. Since the little wit that fools have was silenced, the little foolery that wise men have makes a great, great show. Most editors think that that is an allusion to the bishop's ban, the silencing of the little wit of fools. And therefore, um, Celia allies the usurping court of Duke Frederick with the censorship of the Elizabethan, Elizabethan bishops. If Touchstone is a satirist, it's really his companion in the play, or his opposite in the play, Jaques, who uh, carries most of the play's burden towards satire. I think Jaques we could see as a court satirist with a voice very recognisable to the Elizabethans who had bought work by verse satirists like Marston or Hall or Nash. And as we've already seen, it's Jaques whose lengthy speeches serve most to slow down the play, most to um, stymie its attempts to really get going and most to reinstate telling for doing, description for plot. Perhaps then part of the difficulty of the play's pacing derives from the importing of another non-dramatic genre, verse satire, into the structure of As You Like It. In trying to occupy some of the cultural ground recently vacated by the ban on satire, that's to say, As You Like It becomes more like a satiric poem than a dramatic plot. Again, we could see Hamlet as a kind of satiric voice and perhaps trace an oblique relation to the bishop's ban in that play too. So that's a way of thinking about pastoral and satire and stasis in the play which might try to relate it specifically to the circumstances of its composition. The last idea I'd like to float back is quite different, is a, is a, is a, much, more, uh, a much more modern view, a kind of ahistorical view, 
uh, one of the ways contemporary criticism has revisited the idea of the pastoral. I've discussed pastoral as an escapist and impossible urban genre which presents an idealised or unreal landscape derived from literary precedent rather than from nature. But there's a different way of seeing the play's depiction of the Forest of Arden and one that's more convinced by the moral force of its recuperative energies. It's no surprise, I think, that the Romantic period loved As You Like It as a proto-romantic text, uh, the epitome of Wordsworth's lines in The Table Turned, Uh, Wordsworth encourages the scholar to put down his books and get out into the countryside. One impulse from a vernal wood will teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good than all the sages can. It's a complete epitome of romantic uh, kind of nature worship. Uh, uh, Wordsworth um, alludes quite explicitly to As You Like It uh, to time's uncounted hours uh, in the prelude. So the Romantics rediscovered As You Like It as a kind of proto-Romantic text as something which understood uh, the force of nature in a way that they were trying to understand it. And this new appreciation of As You Like It spoke to a kind of uh, uh, late 18th, early 19th century idealism about the restorative place of nature. And it recast what had been a long critical excuse about Shakespeare, that he had no classical learning, but he was the poet of nature, and turned that into a Uh, an absolute uh, high achievement. I think the heir to that romantic enthusiasm in our own day is the relatively new discipline of eco-criticism. Eco-criticism is a politically engaged study of the interconnectedness of human culture and the environment. Eco-critics, and eco-criticism has been quite active in Shakespeare studies. Eco-criticism and kind of relatedly animal studies, the role of animals in, uh, in Shakespeare's world and in his worldview, have been uh, quite, uh, qu- quite prevalent in the last sort of five or so, five or so years. So if, you, if you're interested in what, what people are really working on now, rather than on that whole history of criticism uh, that sometimes we can feel burdened with by Shakespeare, I think this is probably quite an interesting place to look at. So eco-critics of As You Like It, such as Gabriel Egan in his book Green Shakespeare, have explored the play's depiction of the natural world with more attention to its kind of ecological acuity. Instead of saying this is a kind of literary space, this is the literary space of pastoral, it's saying this is a natural space which is, uh, which is accurately depicted. It reinstates the forest as a natural rather than a literary space. If the, um, if the forest is the source of social regeneration in the play, the place where the court can be newly made, uh, for me that's an if, but if it is that, it is also the site, Egan argues, of a negotiation of the roles of the human and non-human worlds. And once you begin to be made aware of this fact, you can see that as you like it, it's completely preoccupied with animals. It must have more animals in it than any other Shakespeare play, but also more reference to animals. Right from the start, when Orlando complains that his brother is treating him uh, like an animal, his treatment differs not from the stalling of an ox. There's a long um, description of how Jaques is um, addressing a wounded stag um, uh, which is quite important uh, in, this, uh, in this, which I'm not going to read out because of time. But Jaquie's description suggests that the wounded stag ought to have the same right as, as the human. Um, the description is that he, he, he calls the, uh, u- the court in exile usurpers, 
tyrants, and what's worse, to fright the animals and kill them up in their assigned and native dwelling place. So he makes a connection between Duke Frederick pushing out Duke Senior from the human world and then Duke Senior and the, and the courtiers pushing out the animals uh, from the forest. It's one that tries to see an ethical equivalence between the human and animal worlds and suggests that we should uh, deal with nature in the way that we deal uh, with culture. It, it, it is anachronistic, I think, to see Jacques as a hunt saboteur or as an eco-warrior, but it is significant that he alone of the exiled courtiers does not seem to be re planning to return. What you would have, I'll stay to know <coughs> your abandoned cave. So rather than a temporary dream world, Jacques uh, is making uh, an alternative uh, to court, court life in this forest structure. This eco-criticism might be a good way to think about uh, debates about art versus nature, uh, old debates uh, which need a bit of pepping up, I think, in The Winter's Tale or in The Tempest, as well as here in As You Like It. But what I've tried to ask in this lecture is what happens in As You Like It, and I've tried to deal with the answer that not much happens by thinking about the play's generic relations to pastoral and to satire, both in its own day and in recent productions. And I've tried to suggest eco-criticism as a way of thinking again about ideas of nature in Shakespeare's plays. Next week I'm going to talk about Hamlet, and the question about Hamlet is, why is Hamlet called Hamlet? So I hope I'll see you then. Thank you.